Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Matt Smith, and with me as always will be Rhiannon Evans, an Associate Professor in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University. In this interview, we speak to actor Lorcan Cranich. Lorcan has had a long career in acting on and off the screen. He had a run on The Bill, and more recently the BBC series Bloodlands. But for us, he portrayed the lovable, but at times brutal, crime boss of the Aventine, Erastus Fullman. For those of you who are watching along, there's a slight spoiler warning for Season 2, Episode 2 of Rome. But otherwise, enjoy. Here's Lorcan Cranich. For me, it was a bit of a dream job, really. It was one of those things you just go up for, and suddenly it's, it's one of those huge, big HBO series and uh, to be included in that was just a, a, a bit of a dream. It was great. And I knew some of the people who were working on it as well, some of the actors, and that was, that was fantastic. But one of the things that struck me, I'd never been to Rome when we started shooting it. I'd been to Italy a couple of times. I'd been to Florence, Venice, a place like that, but I'd never actually been to Rome. And I remember on the first day, really early in the morning, in the car and driving through it was about April, I think, uh, and driving through the city, which was just waking up, and it was absolutely magical. I mean, it's an extraordinary city, but driving past the actual forum, mouth open at for a half five in the morning, a guy, you know, just awestruck by this, by this city, by this ancient city, which was still lived in by Romans. I mean, they, you pass through what was the forum, and there's chunks of old marble or stone or, or a bit of a statue that's been around for, and um, you know, it's been lying on the road for 2,000 years and nobody's, <laughs> nobody's bothered to go near it. <laughs> and, uh, and then we were going through and empties, empty streets and people cleaning and the birds fluttering away like they would in a Ridley Scott movie and all of that sort of stuff. And then we passed by, by the Colosseum and I'm going, holy Jesus, that's the actual thing. And, blah, blah. and we kept driving on out and passed the Circus Maximus and everything. And we went started leaving the city and after about 20 minutes we came to a sort of suburban area and up on the top above a high wall i could see more statues more ancient statues and as i was looking at that the car turned left and into the main gates the chinichita the studios and what i realized that what i was looking at up on top of the walls was the actual set from the other side of the in the studios itself and then i went inside and saw what the city would have looked like. I mean, it was, they did an amazing, extraordinary work on the thing, pretty much to within, as I'm sure you you know, within inches of what it actually probably looked like. The only difference, as far as I could see, was that it wasn't stone, it was, you know, fiberglass and scaffolding and stuff like that. When I walked around at first, I couldn't believe how, how well with the cobbles and the whole damn thing. And beside that, they had the warren of streets, the shops and the working class places, wherever they did all their trades and things like this. And it was arches and it was extraordinary. And sure enough, you, you know, you, you, it was so easy to get lost in the place. It was brilliant. And uh, the reason I was there was to get a costume sorted out, which she was an amazing woman, did the costumes. And I was, um, <laughs> I kind of was a bit 
bit cheesed off that I wasn't in a, a uniform, a centurion's uniform or a toga or something like that. And these various things, which to me looked a bit like curtains, they cut the mustard, obviously, on screen. I then had to go and get a wig for the scene that we were about to shoot the next day. The wigs were astonishing, world-class stuff. And the the, the the best in the world, the Italian wig makers and wig designers. And there was a man called Aldo who used to, the wig designer of the whole thing. And he, he said to me, uh, well, the scene we were supposed to shoot was a party where all the wealthy Romans used to do was they would dress up. Every party was a fancy dress thing. And they would not only change their clothes, but they would change their style. They would change, they would put on wigs. So I was to be given a wig that was suitable for the party rather than for the character. So he came up with this thing because they were kind of garish a lot of the time. And, and if you look at them, all, all those, they loved big blonde wigs. He gave me this thing, this wig, which is a big blonde Phyllis Diller thing, which actually made me look a bit like Shirley Temple. And it was huge, big, curly, 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 big blonde thing. And um, I looked pretty stupid. But he was an, because he was an artist, he was working at it so, so, so finely. And he was, he spent, they spent nearly two hours putting the thing on. I mean, it's just, it wasn't just plonked on, which is probably what they would have done at the day. But he just put this on. I remember my friend Kieran Hines, who was playing Julius Caesar. He came in in the middle of it to get his wig sorted out and he passed me by and he looked at it and he paused and he looked and he said, uh, well, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> so we took the thing out anyway. We went out, we marched out with Aldo, who's the, the wig designer. We went outside onto the set to see the producers to see what they thought of everything. The reaction <laughs> very quickly was, Oh my God, he looks like a girl. Take it off. Take it off. <laughs> so that was the end of that one. They were extraordinary. I mean, as you see, the women, like, uh, you know, Lindsay, uh, had to, they had to be in at the crack of dawn and they were sitting there in the chairs from about, you know, five o'clock mm. in the morning because they would put so much work in these, the ringlets and everything. Oh my God, it was, they were astonishing. Mm. It's astonishing stuff. But, um, I mean, it was a first big, exciting event for me. And in that kind of detail for a TV program, my mm. God, you know. It, it must have put driving through Rome in a different perspective once you'd seen what it could have looked like when you're on the sets and then you're presented with the with the actual ruins when you drive back through there at night. It um, must have made it all very bizarre to be able to compare those side by side every day when you're going through there. As I say, I didn't know the city. And the day after I arrived, we went straight to, to the studios. And it was only when I, if I had a bit of time to myself after a couple of days' work of filming that I got a chance to sort of have a look around the city. And I went, as you say, to you know the remains of the forum and to, what's his name, birthday cake and all of that stuff. And, and, and I saw the city and realized what was left of what had been out in the studios i was in the art department and they had a huge model it must have been about 15 foot square a model of what they were actually building and it was the old city it was the city itself and it was it was just a uh, magnificent and it was and i was so glad to be introduced to the city of rome to the experience of rome which had uh, 
sort of echoes in modern day, in modern life, all the warren of streets within that city and all the small little shops and restaurants and trattorias and everything like that, all these small little places. And to be working on something which was the origin of what we now have today, it was just fascinating, mm. it really was. It's really interesting to hear you say that they actually built that warren of streets from the ancient city. Because I think that's one of the strengths of the series that you get to see the low down and dirty stuff as well. So it wasn't yeah. just frontages. There's actually there's actually a street pattern that you could get lost in. I didn't realize that because when you were talking about not having seen Rome before you went there to film, I've been to Rome many times and seen the ancient city, but I haven't been to Cinecitta and I would really like to go there. It sounds fascinating to see the set. Yeah, I believe it's still there. Is it? I think so. And they, they've shot other things there. They shot some Doctor Who there. Ah, yes, they shot a yeah. Doctor Who episode. That was a, a while ago. A big fire went yeah. through it and burnt down a lot of it. Well, bizarrely, just across from where our set was, was um, that other great gangster story, The Gangs of New York. The set for that was, was still there. So that was amazing <laughs> to see that as well. You know? That's actually a good slight segue because uh, I think that your character is very much a one that you could transplant into any mobster movie and he would work quite effectively. So I, I was wondering what you kind of took, if anything, as inspiration for the role that you played in Rome. You're absolutely right. As long as there have been humans on the planet, there have been corrupt humans and they have a particular demeanour depending on the culture that they're in, whether it's in New York, whether it's in London, whether it's in, in Italy. I suppose I sort of, I didn't draw on anyone specific. I mean, I had to do a bit of collating and invention myself, really. It depended to a large extent on what the scenes were about. The story or his story, it didn't have as many dimensions as you might get. And so in playing him, it was kind of I couldn't really deviate from what I was being asked mm. to do. And I liked to think of him at the time as a sort of an earlier incarnation of Tony Soprano. You know what I mean? He was somebody who didn't give a damn about certainly the political situation. And he, like so many of these crime lords, is interested entirely in his own survival. And in those days, survival meant life or death. You could be stabbed at any mm. corner small and as and as brutal as that and uh it was just a question of he who shouts the loudest i kind of saw him as somebody who hadn't achieved the great gangster that he wanted to be <laughs> i think he actually wanted to be more of a hero in the underworld than he actually managed you know is it fun to play the bad guy i always think it must be it looked it well if you're offered Robin Hood or the Sheriff of Nottingham, you know, I know which one I take, you know. They're always the fun guys, really, aren't they? Um, and, uh, well, there's a couple of things that, that I distinctly remember was the language, Bruno Heller's invention. And he would invent words, which I, I'm not sure really what he based them on. Uh, some, I, I think it was a mixture of modern street cred and his own idea of what people might have sounded like back in you know in ancient rome there's a line i had um 
2,000 mumping denarii, mumping denarii. What the hell is mumping denarii? And the stuff like this, and you'd kind of go, shut up, <laughs> shut up and say it. And just, <laughs> there was a lot to get through the day. So no, I didn't ask too many questions. But then, you know, I wasn't playing, you know, Julius Caesar or Attia or some of these great roles. You'd go mm. with the flow a lot. One of my favourite moments in the whole thing, from a gangster point of view, there's a scene, and I can't remember which episode in, you'll remember which episode is in, where they're all meeting in a, a tavern, a very big tavern. And one of Erastes' men is describing Mark Antony's speech over ah, Julius Yeah, Caesar. and he, he wraps a tiger, yeah. Yeah, that scene where we're all around the table and he's describing it, it took place in a, in this tavern, which is just absolutely chock-a-block with low lives, crooks and ne'er-do-wells, people of dubious disposition, everything like this. <laughs> I remember in the background, if you, we, we were sitting when we were shooting it. We were there for about more than a day. And there were all sorts of humanity came into that room who were hanging around. The, it were part of the extras in the background. There were strippers, there was small people, there was young, beautiful hermaphrodites. There was, it was just a crazy day. And I remember the call sheet listed all, all of us who had to be there. Once you'd gone through all the actors who had to be, who were in the scene, it then goes to the next thing is all the extras and all the supporting artists and stuff like that. And the list of supporting artists read something like four whores, 16 musicians, two midgets, five rent boys, three strippers, seven fire eaters. And it was just, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe, you can't be Nobody's going to listen to a word we're saying. And sure enough, there was one moment where I was actually watching, I can't remember his name, he was, he was delivering the speech and I was looking at him and just over his shoulder, there was the most blatant sex going on that I've ever seen. In my life. <laughs> just unbelievable. <laughs> I have no time for what you're saying. There's something far more interesting going on over your left shoulder. It was just crazy. But, you know, that was ancient Rome. It was brilliant. I just watched that scene and that must have been going on off camera, I've got to say, because... <laughs> I was more distracted that the guy who was delivering that speech was talking about being able to get an early bevy. And I'm there thinking that's a really modern word for that context. I was, I was more distracted by the slang that he was using in his speech. <laughs> Funnily enough, in yeah. that scene, I think Erastus, your character, got the most character development that you did in the whole stretch of the show because you start saying to your men, you know, do not participate in the looting, uh, show some decorum, show some respect, show some standards. And you were bringing that sort of thing to the table. Yeah. And then you start mouthing off about all the foreign slaves and all the foreigners coming here and taking good, honest Roman jobs. And I thought, okay, we're getting a bit Brexit here with what <laughs> Erasmus wants out of Rome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the manipulation of any situation always seemed to come from what it would do for him and... If he had to make a political decision, if he had to make a decision, he was, he, which fact that he would have been in the in the Caesar faction. Would have been interesting to see his political career in the second season if he survived. Yeah. In your death scene, uh, do you remember any particular bits of that? Because um, your character gets his head cut off because 
he tells Varinus that he he'd taken the two girls or taken his family. He tells Varinus yeah. that he's killed the family, actually, which spoiler alert ended up not being entirely true. You sold them into slavery. Yeah, I, I was wondering in particular, um, did you have to have your head cast because you had your head cut off I, for that scene? Uh, well, there's two things about that. The first was that I didn't know because I hadn't read beyond that episode what had happened to the children. Mm. It was a big question that I remember asking at the time because I only found out on the day that we were doing that that it wasn't true. And I thought, why would somebody like Erastes Fullman tell such a whopper of a lie knowing that he would probably die for it? Why wouldn't he, like a little rat, try and get out of it? Uh, he seemed to have a death wish mm. at the time, do you know? But anyway, I did have to have a, a head cast and I had to get the whole thing buried in plaster of Paris for, and we had to do that. I was very um, pleased to make an appearance <laughs> in the next episode. <laughs> um, um, what I really wanted to do was to try and get a hold of it because I thought, what are you going to do with that now? You're going to throw that in a skip when the whole show's over. I, you know, give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> and do you know what happened to it? Presumably you didn't get the head. I don't know. No. Don't know where, oh, don't where it's gone. But I mean, it was uh, it's too late. It's too late. I'd never had that done either, getting a, a, a cast on my head. And I'll tell you what was fantastic was working with people like Kevin McKidd and Ray Stevenson. Kevin McKidd, just his commitment to the work was just astonishing. And I mean, that goes for all of the actors, really. You mentioned that you knew Kieran Hines before and, and some of the other cast as well. How, how did you know them? Is it Did you know Kieran from Irish productions or elsewhere? Way, way back. I first met him in the late 70s. I went over to London. I went to drama school in London. And the first job I had after drama school was up in a theatre company called Glasgow Citizens, up in Glasgow, uh, the Citizens Theatre Company. And uh, he had worked for them before, and he was working for them again. And so we ended up sharing a flat, and that was back in 1982. Those were the days, I could tell you, um, because... Um, we had our little flat and it was known as the Irish Embassy. So, um, <laughs> so. <laughs> and then later, actually shortly after that, his girlfriend at the time was moving into an apartment in London with another friend of hers who at the 11th hour pulled out. And so his, his girlfriend asked me, did I want to share this, this apartment? I said I did, I would. So um any, anyway, Kieran was in there as well. So, you know, we've we've shared accommodation quite a you know few times now. And um in fact, he only sent me um a text about an hour ago. He's over in London and we're swapping silly videos. <laughs> Sorry to do this, but we do have to ask, can you please text him and ask if he'll be on our podcast? <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. The idea of interviewing Caesar fills me with so much excitement. The idea of interviewing anybody from that show, I mean, I've been studying Rome and Latin for so many years and I'm enjoying re-watching this show and sharing our thoughts with people and getting to interview people like you. It's, it's really tremendous. We're really grateful that you're willing to talk. Well, thank you. But I, I'm delighted to be here. I have a question for you. I mean, as to, like I mentioned earlier on about Bruno's invention it seemed to me that he's, he was pretty faithful to history in telling 
a story about ancient Rome, the real lives of the ancient Romans. Has he done a good job that way? And Well, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, Matt was objecting to, I guess, colloquialism. But I think that's because we're used to hearing Romans in films where they speak in a very stated yeah. way. And I think what the HBO series is trying to get over when it has people speaking maybe more dialect or idiomatically is that they didn't all get up and orate. The newsreader does that. Caesar does it when he makes speeches. But when people are down in the streets, they're trying to make that link with the way ordinary lives are lived. And that's one of my favourite things about the series that you see, I think, a pretty good rendering of ordinary people's lives. So, you know, they're carrying out these little religious rituals. They've got this very casual attitude to what happens to slaves. There's no sentimentality about that, which I think has been very difficult for most screen presentations to do in the past. They tend to brush over, like the, the show that Matt was mentioning. I, I was thinking of the, the Doctor Who episode, The Fires of Pompeii. There are no slaves in that at all, even though it's a well-to-do household. I think they just decided yeah. they couldn't deal with that. I really appreciate that about it. Uh, we, we've talked to, I can't remember who it was now, Matt, that we, we talked to one of the writers who said that he had, he had a lot of well, trouble at times keeping the women in. But I appreciate that, yeah, that they... Bill McDonald. Was it, yeah. was it Bill McDonald? Yeah. yeah, I appreciate that they tried to do that and kept some of those the women and their machinations behind the scenes yeah, in yeah. there because we know that was going on. So, yeah, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, and I mean, there was the whole idea of having sex slaves as well. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Not just servants, but it's a fact. But how do you put that on a screen these days? You know what I mean? I'm delighted that they tried to keep it as authentic as possible. The only thing I object to, and I always do with Rome, and it is about the women, is that those high status women would not have been wearing scantily clad clothes in public ever or at dinner parties. They're completely covered up in stuff that we would consider very dowdy. And that's obviously why they didn't do it. They don't want to dress Polly Walker in dowdy clothes. No. But it would have been neck to ankle. You'd have seen no flesh. No flesh at all. Yeah. Is there anything... um that you wish they would have done with your character that you didn't get to do? Because I, I know with most of your scenes, I think pretty much all of your scenes are with Ray and Kevin. So you never get a scene with Caesar. Uh, you maybe get a scene or two with um, with Posca, his servant. But beyond that, it's it's you and your men. So is, is there anything that you wish that they did to kind of mix it up with your character at all? Yeah. I think you've actually kind of hit it there, that I think that if... He did have more of a, a political journey. He would have been the kind of man that Caesar might have used. And it would have been great to cross those lines, that neither of them were beneath backroom activities so that they could actually talk to, you know what I mean? So that there could have been a good story there, that there was all kind of stuff going on, which Caesar would have sanctioned, but nobody would have known about. And his man in the street would have been Erastes, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. Mm, mm. They hinted at that slightly when um, I think you got paid by Posca, Erastus got paid by Posca to have someone killed and you put um, Pullo onto that. And that's as close as they got to that kind of storyline. After these years, you know more about this story (laughs) than I do. (laughs) You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome with Rihanna Nevins and Matt Smith. And thanks to our guest today, Lorcan Kranich. You can find this podcast as well as our other podcasts, Emperors of Rome and When in Rome, 
on all good podcasting platforms. Please leave a review. They are very much appreciated. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow us on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Raising Standards. Coming up next, Season 2, Episode 2, Son of Hades. Until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.